forgot to actually show you the book. So this is what it looks like. Um, it'll be out on the uh, table there in the foyer. Um, a collection of prayers by Laurel and this. Prayers for all occasions. Well, let me begin this morning um, by airing one of my pet hates. It's always good to get a pet hate off your chest. Um, and we all have them. We pretend we don't, but we all have them. They're things that of themselves aren't really very earth-shattering. In fact, usually they're of very little significance at all, but they are things that really bug us. And in our house, my pet hate revolves around the milk. We, in our house, buy only UHT milk because when you have as many people in your house as what we have, if you have fresh milk, you're constantly running backwards and forwards to the shops. So we buy UHT milk and we buy it by the box full and we store it in the pantry. And when the milk runs out it, in the fridge, it gets replaced by one in the pantry. At least that's what's supposed to happen. Saturday mornings, I like to go out for a run. And when I come back, normally everyone has finished breakfast. And I like to enjoy a long, leisurely breakfast. And on this particular Saturday morning, it's happened twice in the last month, I am running back, looking forward to my stewed rhubarb from my garden, because the vegetable patch is looking good, and the rhubarb's looking good, and I've stew it's been stewed with apple. And I was looking forward to having that on top of my muesli. And so when I get home, I get the muesli out, I put it in the bowl, I put all the rhubarb on top, and I go to the fridge to grab the milk. And the box has a dribble left in it. Who puts the milk back with just a dribble in there? There was literally a dessert spoonful of milk in this box. And so I'm forced to go to the cupboard and get one that's been sitting there all week and is just room temperature. Room temperature milk is not what I want on my cereal when I've just come back from a run. I want nice, cool, refreshing milk. In fact, even if I haven't been on a run, I can't stomach room temperature milk on my cereal. In winter when it's cold and I'm coming back, it's porridge that I want and I want the milk steaming hot to cook the oats and to warm my insides. But when the weather warms up a little bit, it's cold, refreshing milk that I want. Room temperature or lukewarm milk is just insipid and gross. And had the rhubarb not all been stuck into the porridge, into the muesli, I would have put it back in the box. But instead, I had to sit there and eat it. What a waste. Lukewarm is how Jesus described this church in Laodicea in the last of these seven letters that we're going to cover today. And it was not a compliment. I begrudgingly ate breakfast with my lukewarm milk. Made me gag a little bit, but I got it down. Jesus says of lukewarm Laodicea, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And that's a tragic state for a church to be in. So let's have a look at this letter to this last church. To 
To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, Laodicea is the last of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. You can see them all up there on the map. This is probably the first time we've been able to show you where they actually are. Um, you can see Patmos just to the side there with the little white um, fallout mark. So that's where John was and where the letters were being collected from and distributed to these seven churches that you can see marked up there. Laodicea is there in, within the black circle and uh, it was founded around between 261 and 253 BC and it was named by the Seleucid king Antiochus II of Syria and he named the city Laodicea, that's probably not the correct way to say it, it's how we all say it, I think it's more like Laodicea, um, after his wife Leotis. Laodicea lies about 65 kilometres south of Philadelphia, you can see there on the map, and about 160 kilometres east of Ephesus. And the city was in a very strategic location, because as you can see there, it is at the crossroads of two important Roman roads. The north-south road between Sardis and Perga, which was a major centre much further south off this little part of the map here. Um, and that was an important coastal town. And also on the east-west road from the Euphrates to Ephesus. Laodicea was an important centre for banking and finance. And they had an important gold exchange there. And the political centre, it was the political centre for the district. It had multiple theatres and one of the largest stadiums in all of Asia. And this tells us that Laodicea was the wealthiest of all of the seven cities that received letters 
mentioned in Revelation. Indeed, it was one of the wealthiest cities in all of the ancient world at that time. Tacitus records in his annals for us that when Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in around 60 AD, the city refused assistance from the Roman Empire and instead decided that they would do their own rebuilding and they would fund that effort entirely on their own, from their own wealth. Such was the self-sufficiency of this city. Now, the city is located in the Lycus Valley. And unlike many other parts of Asia Minor, which are steep and rocky, the land in the Lycus Valley produced abundant grass for feeding sheep. And indeed, agricultural production, particularly wool production, was uh, part of what Laodicea was known for. And the sheep that were grown around that area were black sheep. And they produced a very soft and shiny black wool that was used in the clothing manufacturing industry that happened in Laodicea. Now, we always associate black sheep with something negative. But in that part of the world, it was not negative at all. It was something to be very proud of. The wool that was got from these sheep was a beautiful kind of wool. And it was used for producing black garments. And those garments would be the equivalent of today's high-end products, the designer-type products. And the people of Laodicea wore them proudly because it was a status symbol, a symbol of wealth, to be wearing wool from these black sheep that were raised around that area. And it is said that almost exclusively the people in Laodicea wore black because they wanted to be known to be from that particular town. The primary deity that was worshipped in Laodicea was Menkaru. And associated with the temple dedicated to this deity, there was a famous school of medicine. And it was based on the teachings of Hierophilus, who reasoned that compound diseases required compound medications to treat them. And connected to that school was an industry that produced some of these um, medications and ointments. And one such compound that Laodicea was well known for was cholerium, which was made from pyrogean stone and it was used as an eye treatment. Don't ask me how you can use a stone as an eye treatment. It doesn't make sense to me, but apparently that's what happened. So Laodicea, it seemed, was a city that lacked nothing. They had this great wealth. They were able to cure their own ailments with these medications that they produced. They had beautiful clothing and they had trade coming in and out of the, the town because of the location that they were on. They lacked for nothing except perhaps for the most important thing because they had no potable water supply in that town. And the water had to be piped in from elsewhere. To the north was Hierapolis. And that was an ancient spa city 
with abundant hot springs all around it. And it looks amazing and it still looks like that today. After preparing for this, I want to go and visit this place because it just looks awesome. These springs are known as Pamukkale, which means cotton castle because the water in these springs is laden with minerals, particularly calcium carbonate. And this leaves deposits on, the, on wherever the springs form and they look white and cottony. And Heropolis was built right near these uh, springs. And to this day, uh, people come from all over the place to visit and to bathe in these springs for their comforting and healing and soothing properties. And hopefully one day I'll get to do that too. <laughs> to the southeast, there was another city that you will have heard of that was Colossae. And it was at the foot of this mountain here. And it received its water from the cool mountain springs. In contrast to Heropolis, Colossi's water was crisp and refreshing. And many have assumed, based on the words of Jesus here, that Laodicea's water was lukewarm because they piped it in from Hierapolis, where it was hot, and by the time it reached Laodicea, it had cooled down. But in fact, archaeologically, there's little evidence to support that at all. Instead, it seems that Laodicea received water from springs to the south, which may well have been hot as well, um, via an aqueduct and an inverted siphon system. And that, what you can see on the slide there is part of this inverted siphon system that was bringing the water through the valley and up to Laodicea. And you can see within that siphon system all of the deposits on the inside of the pipes which required them to be constantly cleaned. And their engineers had developed little vents and inspection points that they could get into to try and get some of this um, carbonate off the inside of the pipes. But by the time the water had reached Laodicea, it was lukewarm. In contrast to Philadelphia, the church for which Jesus had no words of rebuke, for Laodicea, there is only rebuke. Rebuke and a call to repentance. So Laodicea then is exhibit A for us on what not to do. So it's important that we understand exactly what the problem was in Laodicea to ensure that we don't end up just like it. Jesus introduces himself to them in this letter as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. And that is quite a title, isn't it? But what does it mean? What does it mean to be the Amen? Amen is a word that we use all the time. But it's become one of those words that we are so familiar with that we almost don't know what it means anymore. It's almost become like a punctuation mark at the end of a sentence, at the end of a prayer. We've got to say Amen because then people will know we've finished praying. But the word actually carries meaning, and it's important that we know what its meaning is. When we say it at the end of a prayer, or when we shout it out when someone is speaking, uh, 
speaking in church or speaking elsewhere, what we are doing is confirming or verifying that what has just been said or what has just been prayed is the truth and that we agree with it. In fact, in this church, for quite some time, whenever we said amen, we used to say, we agree at the end of it. We used to say, amen, we agree. And that reminded us that that's what we're doing when we're saying amen. It's not a robotic thing that we say. It actually carries meaning. Amen is also an Old Testament name for God. In Isaiah 65, 16, he is literally the God of amen, which means he's the God of truth. And in 2 Corinthians 1.20, we read this of Jesus. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken to the glory of God. Jesus is the amen because in him, the truth of all of God's promises is confirmed. He is the faithful and true witness that Laodicea was not. And he's also the ruler of all creation. And together these statements speak to us and speak to Laodicea of his divinity and his authority. And because Jesus felt the need to have to introduce himself in that way to this church, we know that perhaps that was something that they had lost sight of. They had lost sight of his divinity and his authority in the church. Jesus says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Some versions at this point say vomit, vomit you out of my mouth. The point is that Jesus could not stand the state that they were in. And I'm sure that all of you at some point have put something in your mouth that just makes you want to gag. And you just want to get it out as quickly as you can. For my husband, it's lukewarm coffee. If he goes to a coffee shop and they make lukewarm coffee, that coffee's either going back to be heated up or it's going down the drain. He just can't get it down. And you could say that Jesus couldn't stomach this church, which is such a tragic state for a church to be in. Now, we need to be clear here about exactly what it is that Jesus is saying when he says that he wishes they were either hot or cold rather than being lukewarm. Lukewarm is not a measure of passion or of spirituality. Nor is he saying that a hot person is a believer and a cold person is an unbeliever (coughs) and that either of those is preferable to some sort of state of indecision in between. Lukewarm is not a measure of belief. Neither of those two explanations would fit well with the rest of the body of scripture. And what he means is clarified for us by Jesus in the very next verse. 
You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The lukewarm person or the lukewarm church has lost its dependence on God. They don't need his forgiveness because in their arrogance, they don't really believe that they have sinned. They don't really need Christ's righteousness because they're already full of their own self-righteousness. And they don't really need the enabling power of the Holy Spirit in their lives because they're quite well enough able on their own and they wield quite enough power on their own. So don't think of someone who is lukewarm as that person who kind of used to be really, you know, passionate and, you know, when you, when you see what we would think of as passionate worship, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. A lukewarm person is not someone who's not like that. It's about dependence. It's not about what outwardly you appear like in your worship. The measure of one's dependence on God is important because it will determine one's impact for the kingdom in this world because our effectiveness in doing the mission that's been given to us by Jesus depends upon the extent with which we cooperate with God in the work that he is already doing in the world. And you can't do that if you're operating independently of God. So your impact will be very low. The hot water of Hierapolis was comforting and healing. People came from all over to bathe in it. The cold mountain water of Colossae was invigorating and refreshing. The Laodicean church, like their water, was neither comforting nor healing to the community around them, nor was it invigorating and refreshing to the community around them. It had lost its impact because it was operating independently of God. Now, how can I be so sure of that? Well, if you skip down to verse 20, look where the head of this church is. Jesus is the head of the church and where is he? He's not even in it. He's outside of it. He's standing and knocking at the door. He should be inside. He should be the head of the church and the Lord of every single life in that place. And yet here he is pictured outside, knocking and waiting to be let in. How did they manage to fall this far? Well, it seems that that self-sufficient attitude of the city had also permeated the church. Remember, we don't need help from the Roman authorities to rebuild. We can do it ourselves and we'll finance it ourselves. In the church too, it would seem that the authority this time of Jesus had taken a back seat to their own self-sufficiency. And what a shock these words must have been to them. 
Ephesus had forsaken its first love, yet Jesus commended their hard work and their perseverance and the fact that they would not tolerate false apostles. Pergamum tolerated false teachers, but Jesus commanded them, commended them for holding firm in the face of persecution. Thyatira tolerated sexual immorality, but Jesus commended their love and their faith and their service and their perseverance. Even in Sardis, the church that Jesus described as dead, he was able to commend a few as being worthy. But there is no such praise for lukewarm Laodicea. So from Laodicea then, if we learn anything, we have to learn just what a serious condition lukewarmness really is because Jesus has nothing good to say about it. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we as concerned about lukewarmness within our church as we are about sexual immorality? or as we would be about false teaching. Because the letters to the seven churches tell us that Jesus is. He's as concerned, if not more concerned, about them being lukewarm. And his counsel to them speaks so personally to their situation. The city was an important centre for finance and banking and they had that gold exchange they were outwardly wealthy, but pride had prevented them from seeing just how wretched and pitiful and poor they were spiritually. They had all the money they could ever want. But Jesus tells them they were poor and he counsels them to buy from him gold refined in fire so that they might become rich. Now gold that has been refined in fire is gold from which all the impurities have been removed. They've been stripped away and in our lives that can only happen when pride is stripped away to allow the riches of God's grace to shine through in our lives. The city was known for its production of that soft shiny black wool and the people proudly wore black garments as a symbol of their affluence. Jesus says, your state is shameful before God. Buy from me white garments to wear to cover your shameful nakedness. You can imagine that. They thought they were walking around in designer clothes. Jesus says, you're naked. He's saying, don't be clothed in your own self-righteousness. That is nauseating. Instead, clothe yourselves in my <coughs> righteousness. The city, remember, was also known for its medical school and its production of cholerium to treat eye complaints. Jesus says, buy from me, self, to put on your eyes so that you can see. No amount of medical expertise or clever medication was ever going to fix the problem of blindness in this city because it was a spiritual blindness. Their pride, their own self-sufficiency had resulted 
in a spiritual blindness that only Jesus could fix. And yet where is he in this church? He's on the outside. And he needs to be let in before things are going to change. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline, says Jesus. And there is surely a whole other Sunday's worth of message that we could spend on that one. Nobody ever enjoys being disciplined, but it is a necessary part of growing up. Parents who love their children will, from time to time, have to rebuke and discipline them. Most don't enjoy doing that. But they need they know that as a parent it is their job to teach that child right from wrong, good from bad, and to teach them how to be good citizens. Because Jesus loves us, we likewise should expect rebuke and discipline from time to time as he teaches us to be good citizens in the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we will find that rebuke in his word, reading passages like this one today. Sometimes it will come through a trusted Christian friend or maybe the leadership in the church. But when offered in love, we need to be able to swallow our pride and to take it in love. And that is not going to be easy for any of us. Be earnest and repent, says Jesus. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And what beautiful words they are after such a stinging rebuke. He hasn't gone away. He hasn't given up and deserted this church. Their pride and their self-sufficiency might have pushed him out, but he says, here I am. I'm still here, standing and knocking, waiting for anyone who will open the door. The bridegroom offers his proposal and he waits for who will answer. Hear my voice and open the door, he says, and I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Many equate this church in Laodicea with the Western church of today. Flabby and self-sufficient, yet starved of God's word. Busy and proud of its achievements, yet spiritually poor. Wretched and pitiful, always talking about Jesus without ever really letting him in. Full of church goers rather than disciples, blind, at times to their own spiritual nakedness. The words that we read today are a stinging rebuke. And you can imagine how taken aback the Laodiceans must have been because they thought they were doing well. And truth be known, so do most of us. They thought they didn't need a thing. But in actual fact, their city had everything but the most important and essential thing, that potable water. Their church lacked for nothing except the most important and essential thing, and that was Jesus. Without water, a city could not exist. And so Laodicea's engineers had set to work constructing these aqueducts and siphons and water towers 
to supply the city with what it needed most. Without Jesus, a church ceases to exist. The building might still be there and there might be the appearance of much success, but lock him out of the church and it won't matter how great that church appears to be or how many hundreds or thousands of people it's packing in each week spiritually before God, it will be wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. And that is why your pastors will always be much more concerned about attendance at the prayer meetings than at any other program or social event that we might hold because, as Laurel has told us this morning, prayer changes things and prayer is important and God uses prayer to help us align our will with his and ensure that our ways are his ways. And it is important today that we don't just read these words to Laodicea as words given to some ancient and now long past church that has little to do with us. Because these words have everything to do with us. Indeed, I am sure that lukewarmness is a far greater threat to the church today than is persecution. The devil must love the lukewarm church because it is absolutely no threat to him. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. They have no need to depend on God. They have life completely under their own control and they have absolutely no intention of completely handing the reins over to God. God can have a part of them but he can never have all. He can go this far but no further. There's boundaries. They will serve happily but only if it's convenient for them. They are happy for a Christian influence in their lives but only as long as their lives don't have to change too much. Such a church brings no healing or comfort to those in the community around it. Neither does it refresh or invigorate the society in which it sits. It is neither hot nor cold. And Jesus could well have written these words today to the Western church. So we have to allow them to penetrate our lives. Jesus was on the outside of the Laodicean church, but they probably didn't even know it. They probably thought in their arrogance and self-sufficiency that they were doing quite well. How tragic it would be to go through life Christian by name only, when in reality our state is wretched, poor, pitiful, blind and naked before God. Throughout this series, names have captivated me and uh, Laodicea means judgment of the people. And it is such an apt name in so many ways. In this church, the opinion of the people mattered more than the opinion of God. In this church, the people judged themselves very favorably, but in God's eyes, they were spiritually poor. And ultimately, for those who refused to be earnest and repent, 
judgment was coming and they would be called to give account. For those who overcome, those whose eyes have truly been opened, those who are dressed in a righteousness that is not their own and have allowed themselves to be purified and refined, there is this most wonderful promise. Jesus says that they will sit with him on his throne just as he sits with the Father on his throne. To sit with Jesus on his throne means to share the spoils of his victory, to share in the honour and the victory that belongs to him. And how very gracious of our God to offer that to these ones whose current behaviour made them made him want to spit them out of his mouth. The good news this morning is that it seems that the Laodicean church did take these words to heart. At least some of them did. Some did become earnest and repent. They did hear the knock and open the door for Jesus into their hearts. Of all of the churches in Asia at the time, Laodicea remained active and dynamic well after most of them had disappeared. In 161 AD, some 70 years after this letter was penned, history records that one of the bishops of Laodicea was martyred for his faith in Christ. So we know that when we get to that great wedding banquet, there will be people from this church at Laodicea there with us. In 363 AD, Laodicea was chosen as the location of a significant church council. These ones that Jesus once wanted to spit from his mouth will be welcomed with open arms as his much-loved bride because they did repent and they were earnest. Lukewarmness is a very common and a very critical condition, but it is very difficult to self-diagnose. The Laodiceans were blind to it, and we need to ask God for some of that salve to put on our own eyes that we might see our true spiritual state before him more clearly. Let's do that now. Father God, this is a shocking assessment before us today. Shocking because it could be us. Father, open our eyes today. Help us to see that which is lukewarm in us and nauseating to you. Give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to each of us here this morning. Lord, we want to be a people who are set apart for you and ready to do your will. Show us, Lord, where our pride or our self-sufficiency is standing in our way. Help us to depend only upon you as the head of this church and the Lord of our lives. Lord, if there are any here this morning who've never opened the door fully for you, I pray today would be their day, the day they invite you in and hand over the reins of their life to you. Amen.
We're going to stand and be led 